the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Everyone, welcome to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is here and dancing as well. Just, just gave me finger points <laughs> like a real cool guy. It's a good day. <laughs> I love. I wish. I wish that there was like additional footage of just the madness <laughs> that people can't hear. Like they're or that's kind of what I meant yeah, more than more than oh the boy <laughs> should we start over let's let's just start over hi it's I'm time Ian. for a conversation <laughs> I say words sometimes are the right words often they're the wrong words uh, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show eleven sixty hope dot com wherever it is that you get your podcast actually somebody the other day was like you should suggest to people if they have like an Alexa or something to just tell Alexa hey subscribe to the Common Good. Does that work? I had no idea. Apparently it does. You, you can just say to your Alexa or Siri, uh, subscribe to the Common Good Podcast. Wow. And, uh, and it will find us and subscribe and suggest it to a friend. Like that's, the, come on people, that's as easy as it gets right there. <laughs> yeah, but you do you do have to remember, maybe it's not about ease, maybe it's about desire. Maybe oh, okay. it's, <laughs> They're like, yeah, Brian. There's I not know. many people out there going, I just wish it was easier. <laughs> right, right. They're like, yeah, we know how to. We We're just, just not sure we, we just want, don't want to. to. <laughs> not ready for that kind of commitment. Uh, <laughs> Guilty, that's fair. That's, that's right, fair. right. That's fair. All right, so one of the things that I love about this show is uh, there's a, a pretty rich variety of the ty- the kinds of things that we go after, and sometimes people will suggest stuff to us. Sometimes we'll just see it on Facebook. I actually saw a friend of mine post this story. Uh, it's a it's about a year old, but the, the headline kind of grabbed me, not just because I've spent time in India in a lot of ways. I just feel like I have just a lot of affection for India in general, but the, uh, the headline says, Train Traveler's Tweet Leads to Rescue of 26 Young Girls Crazy. from Sex Trafficking. So, like, essentially the scene is this this person's riding on the train and here's what they tweet uh, i'm traveling in avad express and then it gives the number in s5 in my coach there are 25 girls all are juvenile some of them are crying and all feeling insecure uh and apparently this observation leads to the rescue of these girls caught in sex trafficking wow. and it's it's a remarkable story and it's it the thing that i really love about it is it's someone who, who doesn't have any special powers didn't have any massive audience it wasn't some celebrity it wasn't somebody that like quote had some like inside connection it was just somebody you know probably just minding their own business i've not been on a long train ride in a while but people tend to kind of like put in their headphones don't talk to me leave me alone they kind of enter into their own world and they just happen to observe something that made them think this doesn't, this doesn't yeah. seem right, and it led to the rescue of these girls. I, th- I think this is a fantastic story. It is. It is such a crazy story. One, it is the 
like the whole even concept of of humans uh, human trafficking is so foreign to me. Even though I know it happens all around us all the time, like it is. I mean, even in our counties. Oh, absolutely! Just the concept of it is so over the top. Like I remember every time I hear someone talk about like child sex trafficking, I was like, really? Like that really happens? Like you know, like. and it's not me doubting. It's like I can't get my mind around it. Like it is like so dark. And so when you read this story and you think about these 26, you know, kids, basically girls on this train, just terrified. And, you know, who knows what they've been through? It's it's at first heartbreaking. And then, to, you know, there's the, the encouragement that they're saved. And like you said, we do go through so much of life just not only not noticing what's around us, but but trying to ignore what's around us. Like, right, right. I don't want to have to worry and be brought into what's around me. And so it does bring up a lot of things. The power of just observation of seeing what's around you, questioning what's going on. Like, you know, this person could have been like, I don't quite understand what's going on with all of these girls, but I'm sure it's something legitimate. Like, I'm sure it's something. I'm sure they're fine. Yeah. But instead, this person's like, no, I'm going to. I know this sounds strange to call it an inconvenience when the lives of 26 girls are at stake, but to be like, I'm going to inconvenience my life and put myself in the middle of this. And then like you were saying, it also adds to the power of social media. We often talk about just the dark uh, potential of social media or the frustrating potential of social media, but this is it used to good. Like, Hey, I'm going to get on social media and tweet the people that need to be tweeted at and just go, I don't know if something's going on, but man, it sure looks like something's off here. And by this person um, caring and, and inconveniencing themselves and, and trusting that something wasn't right and then doing something about it, yeah. save the lives. I mean, 26 girls, that is that is a big, big deal. Yeah, it says ages uh, between the ages of 10 and 14, yeah. by the way, which like just leaves a, a, a pit in my stomach. I can't even, like you were saying, some of the statistics I've even read about DuPage County and just human trafficking in general, the thousands of people caught in human trafficking in our own counties every single year. Like it's it is very, very easy to think, well, I'm I'm not exposed to it. I'm not seeing it. So it's yeah. not happening. And and I think you touched on what I what I want to kind of spend the rest of the time talking about is so often social media gets a bum rap. For a good reason, I think, right? Like sure. we, our faces are always in it. We're not paying attention when we drive. We don't want to interact with each other face to face. I think all of those, all of those conversations and positions have merit, but we do also see a number of stories where the power of social media can actually impact the world for good. And I think, what if instead of, and I'm not saying it isn't totally appropriate for some people to say, yeah, I deleted my Facebook. Like, yep. good for you. Yep. Like, yep. Not, yep. Not yourself. I'm not saying, I'm not even prescribing either or. Yep. It just feels like so often we either jump to this thing is a problem, uh, I hate it, or just like full addiction to it. Yes. When I, when what, maybe it's not just social media. What would it, what would it look like for us to have honest conversations about these things and say, are there ways for us to use this for good? Hmm. Whether it's Facebook, Twitter, whether it's technology in general, like what would it look like to redeem this thing that's maybe become an addiction for me and my family? Is there a way to do that? Is it better just to delete the account? That's fine. But like I think even of the the girl that was, you know, kind of born into the Westboro Baptist um, uh, universe. Yeah. And she, you know, gave a TED talk talking about it was it was precisely the Twitter audience that was willing to have patient conversations with her that led to her seeing how jacked up her system was mm. and eventually helped her get out like social media for her 
kind of saved her life in in a way too. So I think there's I, I don't know. I just want to celebrate more of those stories of the yeah. the power of some of these things. I mean, in her initial tweet, and this is not like a celebrity doing it, right? Like it's just somebody put it on Twitter. Uh, and it quickly received 7,000 retweets and 4,000 comments. Like, that's the power of the connectedness of our world. Yeah. People saw this, and they're like, we've got to do something. Right, right. Uh, and and it just began spreading like wildfire. And before these guys could even, you know, get off at the next stop or wherever they were getting off, there were officials waiting for them. Like, th- there is a power to the connectedness of, to our, of our world that isn't always bad, like you said. Sometimes it's dark. Sometimes social media is frustrating. Uh, but there is a good thing to it. And the irony here is, is that it's often social media that keeps us from being aware of what's around us, right? Like you're just in your mm. phone. Uh, and and I, I do want to highlight again, this woman's just the ability to observe. She, I, mean, I doubt she was the only one on the train, right? Who saw these people. Right. And uh, the fact that she said, you know what? Something doesn't seem right. So I'm going to put myself even in the middle of it a little bit and, yep. and put myself out there. Uh, change the lives and save the lives of 26 girls is just unbelievable. Well, and the fact too, that so many other people uh, participated in kind of making it, making it go viral for me restores a little bit my faith in humanity. Like even people who I imagine weren't even in India saw this were like, Nope, collective good. Mm. We got to make something happen. This isn't okay. And I think let's, yeah, let's tell more stories like that. Yeah, it is. It isn't all the world isn't always all falling apart. There are good people doing good things. And maybe like you said, it takes looking up from our phone every once in a while and observing what's going on around us. Because yeah. I'm sure this person could have said, ah, if this was a big enough issue, somebody else would have taken care of it. Now they mm. stepped in. They made the difference. Twenty six girls rescued. I yeah. just think it's a tremendous story. We celebrate that. Well, coming up next, uh, our buddy Rick Richardson uh, wrote a book that comes out today. And let me just read you the title. I think this conversation is going to be fantastic. It's called You Found Me, New Research on How Unchurched Nuns, Millennials, and Irreligious are Surprisingly Open to Christian Faith. Mm. Rick is absolutely brilliant. I think this this. conversation is going to be outstanding. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about taking a deep dive into the mess and the gray and the stuff that sometimes just doesn't have easy answers because, honestly, I think that's where most of us live most of the time. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And I know I say this a lot, but this time I mean it. (laughs) I'm absolutely thrilled to have, not on the phone, not via Zoom or Skype, but in the flesh, incarnate, in the studio incarnate. right now. People are just holding their breath like, what? <laughs> the Lord Jesus. No. <laughs> Rick Richardson is in the studio. Rick, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Brian. It is awesome being here with I you I love guys. your energy, man. I'm telling you. So I, I would love, uh, just for anyone who doesn't know who you are, rather than me introduce you, how would you introduce yourself? What do you do? What are you passionate about? How would you describe yourself to someone that doesn't know who you are? I came to Christ uh, in college and did college ministry for a number of years and then did church ministry, and now I teach it all. I'm at Wheaton <laughs> College, and I'm a professor. I wasn't successful at... No. <laughs> you're not successful? Teach it. Yeah. So anyway, I'm a professor at Wheaton College of Evangelism and Leadership. I direct our research institute, out of which some of the stuff we're talking today came. And then I also lead a thing called the Church Evangelism Institute that has worked with 180 churches wow. to turn the ship 
and help them revitalize through revitalizing their mission. So you're not really doing much is what you're saying. No. Just a lot of, man, I'm lazy, man. <laughs> a lot of leisure time, a lot of downtime. Oh, so you, you just wrote a new book. It's called You Found Me, New Research on How Unchurched Nuns, Millennials, and Irreligious Are Surprisingly Open to Christian Faith. And Brian and I, we say this all the time, our, our pastors, and that title and subtitle in and of itself, like I'm already in. I'm, yes. all, I'm already hooked. But we know that not everyone listening is in full-time vocational church ministry work. I'd love to know first, just kind of 30,000 foot, why, why this book? Why right now? There's a few reasons. One is that what we found in our research is there's a lot of receptivity to spirituality, but not just to spirituality, but also to Christian faith. And we don't believe it. We've got a narrative hmm. out there that yeah. tells us people are not open. We've lost the battles. The church is being marginalized. Right. Nobody cares. Everybody's heard it, been there, done that. They don't want to have anything to do with it. And so there's a narrative that shuts us down hmm. before we get started. And that's true with churches, but it's also <clears throat> true with a lot of us as individuals. Why share your faith hmm. if you're convinced nobody wants to hear about yeah, it? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I, I don't know if I ever told you this, Ian. I was I have been part of one of your church evangelism initiative groups, and it was fascinating. So I'm so excited to read this book because I've seen a lot of the research, and now it's all going to be in one place. Uh, maybe for just more background before we dive into the concepts, how did you go about doing this research? Kind of, how did you acquire uh, all of these stats and, and these findings? Well, it's a pretty complicated project. We've been at it for three years, and I tell you, this has been a labor of love and agony because uh, you get stats. It's great stuff, but nobody wants to read a book of stats. They want stories. (laughs) They want it to make sense of their lives, and they want to connect with it. So we really did everything we could to create a book that has great stats with Mm. 2,000 unchurched people around the country. Wow. We also surveyed 45. 500 Protestant churches, and then we did a deep dive with the 60 that are reaching people the best, and then we interviewed previously unchurched people at these 60 churches. So you look at the stuff there, it is full of stories, it connects with our everyday lives, and it really is talking to every kind of person you can imagine. Yeah, so it's it's a robust project. This isn't just anecdotal thoughts with Rick, like, hey, I think this is where we're... (laughs) I could have written that. (laughs) I'd also read that. I've written a couple of those. (laughs) I'd read thoughts with Rick right now. But But to your point, though, because like you said, there are a lot of narratives and even on the show, sometimes it feels like from week to week, we're reading completely conflicting data. Yep. Like, wait a minute, the church is collapsing. The church has never been better. Everyone's leaving. Everyone's joining. Like, it can be really confusing in this tumultuous wave of, I mean, whatever's loudest is often what's believed, okay. unfortunately. That's right. And I'd love to know, like, what are, the, what are the things that you're learning or that surprised you even in this really kind of robust research project? Well, I think there's four myths we believe. Hmm. And there's a res- there's a kind of research support for some of them, but it's been misinterpreted and, mm. and misappropriated and uh, proclaimed across the land. And we've accepted a narrative mm. based on false myths yeah. that are shutting our churches and our people down from witness. So one is that America is becoming a nation of nuns. A second is millennials are forsaking the church never to return. I, I saw a statistic just last week, that 96% of millennials leave the church and they never come back. Mm. 
That's a huge, that has a big impact. It alarms us. It makes us buy the book that the person was trying to <laughs> yeah, sell yeah. and go to the conference that the person was trying to advertise. Yes, yes. It's completely false. No kidding. But it's it's gone viral everywhere. Yeah. So those are two of the myths. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to unpack some of these. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, anyone who's spent any time with you also knows that like evangelism is your passion. So you wrote a book called, I remember, what was it? Reimagining Evangelism. Uh, and some others, maybe a little bit of background too. Where's that passion come from? Where, why are you so driven and so passionate about evangelism? I grew up in a family that went to the Unitarian Church, and for me, wow. uh, that was a philosophically satisfying but spiritually empty place to be. Hmm. And when I went to, into high school and then college, I was reached uh, by groups, first Youth for Christ uh, and Jay Kessler, uh, at a beach project that I didn't know what I was getting into when I went on it. Uh, some friend said, hey, man, come to the beach, and, you know, you we're going to have a great time. You're not going to believe it. And uh, turned out that the price of admission was listening to people preach every night. So anyway, uh, after I got over it, uh, about about two-thirds of the way through the uh, week, I committed my life to Christ. And then in intervarsity, I got discipled. Hmm. I got uh, grown up in the faith. And so I have this huge passion to see people like me come to faith in Christ and have that emptiness addressed and filled. Hmm. See, that's one of the things that I love about you so much, because before I ever met you, there are probably four or five people at community that are like, oh, you got to meet Rick. Like people vouch for you, not just in terms of your passionary, but your authenticity. Because like you said, there's a lot of stats flying around. And to be totally honest, a lot of times it's to sell a book. Or to fill a conference, and you have this, you you live the walk, and I think I really, I appreciate that because it's so refreshing, and it also I think fuels why this topic is so important to you. One of the things that drives me crazy the most that there are national evangelism gurus and trainers who are not reaching anybody (laughs) in their personal life. And all their stories, you can tell, because all their personal (laughs) stories are 10 to 35 years Mm. old. And they're moving, powerful, wonderful, transforming, and they just aren't current. And it drives me crazy. I heard one of the top evangelism trainers in the country say, hey, you know, I've really decided it's fine for us just to do evangelism with the people that come to our church. Wow. I, I don't really have time anymore to reach oh, out in my neighborhoods man. or anything like that. So I just share with the people our people bring us. And I just wanted to scream. <laughs> <laughs> well, for what it's worth, like that to me is so uh, not just inspiring, but motivating because so often, you know, you read stuff on a page. And if you don't know the person, you're like, do they even care about this? Right. And like everything that I know about you, which isn't a lot is that you like breathe this stuff mm-hmm. like it is what gets you up in the morning. And so that's why we're excited to have you. Let's say two more segments, actually, just to unpack some of the not only the topic, but some of the things that maybe are challenging to the people. Because another thing that we know about the radio is that for a lot of people, radio is their first kind of dipping a toe in the waters well before they ever actually attend a church right. yes. or attend a conference. So I'd love to just yeah. better understand a little bit about what makes you tick and why. Yeah. And if you're just joining us, this has been Rick Richardson, author of You Found Me, new research on how unchurched nuns, millennials, and irreligious are surprisingly open to Christian faith. And we're going to stick around with more Rick and wisdom <laughs> here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And we have in the studio, in the flesh, Rick Richardson, author of 
a bunch of stuff, actually. But the book that comes out today is called You Found Me, New Research on How Unchurched Nuns, Millennials, and Irreligious Are Surprisingly Open to Christian Faith. And as we mentioned previous, this isn't just like a, it's not a memoir. It's not just like the musings of Rick Richardson. It's a highly researched topic and one that I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with a pastor where they weren't asking some form of these questions. Right. Like people seem really interested and really fat and not just pastors, to be honest. And I, I'd love to know, cause you'd mentioned something during the break that you're finding that people are actually very open to Christian faith, but not necessarily the approaches that many of us take. What, what do you, what do you mean by that? I think a lot of us have been taught about the way to share our faith mm-hmm. and it's a way to kind of, initially connect to a person and find out about their spiritual story, tell ours and challenge them pretty quickly. Like there's a, there's an emphasis on when you're with somebody, share the gospel, invite them to faith, Uh, Mm. do that uh, pretty quickly. And, and one of the things that our research uh, confirmed that we've also seen in some of the Barna research uh, is that, uh, that people in spiritual conversation, they have questions, but there's two things they're afraid of. Mm-hmm. One is judgment. Uh, the other is being expected to be something they're not. Mm. Wow. And the way that works out in conversation is people don't want you to start with some words or message that <clears throat> seems like you're focusing on judging them. Mm. And then secondly, people don't want you to bring the conversation to a conclusion mm. that was your agenda uh, from the beginning. Right. So you go in and you start with, God loves you and you're a sinner. Immediately, <laughs> you got number one. <laughs> right, right. And then you go on to say, Christ died for you and rose for you and you can have him. Would you like to receive Christ? And there's your conclusion yes. that you were trying to get to as quickly as you could. Right. So in just 10 minutes, You've hit the two top fears (laughs) that people who are unchurched have Mm. about spiritual conversation, which is why then they tell us Mm. they have a lot of spiritual questions. They want to talk with people, but they don't tend to want to talk with their Christian friends. Fascinating. And when you bring that up, I mean, Ed and I have joked uh, on the show that what you just said is exactly how I was trained to share Jesus. Like with a clipboard, right? Literally the the clipboard at the beach you brought up at at these conferences where you would get kind of taught in the morning and then spit out onto the beach in the afternoon. And so, uh, but what you're saying makes so much sense. So why do you think we as the church have always trained in that way? Is it because, you know, kind of a competitiveness or we don't want to make relationship? Uh, Why have we gone about it that way? Do you think? I think it's because up until the sixties, actually, I know that's a long time ago, but (laughs) in the sixties we had culture shift. And the shifts have been accelerating. Mm. And up until the 60s, a lot of our training, if you think about it, Bill Bright, yeah. uh, Campus Crusade, right. University, a lot of the training started in the parachurch and then got adapted for the church. Right. A lot of it was created in, in the 50s and 60s, actually. Right. Like, that's where it all started. Mm. And so what you had was a culture that was nominally Christian everywhere. People got certain concepts. They believed in God. Right. They actually did think that you needed to be a nice person, and it was sinful, mm. and you were accountable for that. And uh, people felt like, you know, I, if I want to go to heaven, and I got to be a pretty good person. Like, there were assumptions mm. we all held in common that we no longer do. So we were mm. trained to share our faith in a different age and a different time yeah. and a different culture. 
which leaves uh, leaves you know it leaves us inadequate. Yeah, right. Uh, for what we're doing now. So does it feel like in some ways the church has been kind of caught in the past? Like if if culture has shifted and migrated, and the church's methodology still exists in the sixties and seventies. How do you keep from spooking church leaders when you say things like, hey, we need to update our methods? Because like, I know that some people get really up in arms like the gospel is the method and it's the conclusion <laughs> and to challenge or to change any of that is heresy. Like, have you found that leaders are receptive to some of what you're finding or are people kind of skittish? Yeah, I found two kinds of responses. And actually, mm. the second one's the harder one. The, the first one is people who get just say, I've been doing this since, since the 60s and right. or 70s, or right. we created this, or yeah. we grew up down the street from this church that did this <laughs> method, yes. And, yes. and it still works. Uh-huh. We still see things happen because mm. of it. And uh, and I would say, well, yeah, but how often and what kind of results and who are you reaching? Mm, and good question. As I kind of probe, I find out that uh, it works with 10% of the people or less, and it works in cultural context where it's still mostly not nominal Christians oh, in parts of the country in the Bible Belt and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and and you can still get some results that way and, and, and all that. Now, here's the second thing I run into. Mm. It's the just it's the assumption because of the way we were trained and by whom we were trained. Right. So we're just not aware of the way we've been programmed. Yeah. Mm. So and and so then people say, well, this is the way I've been programmed. This is how I do it. I learned how to do it. I don't know any other way. So you take away that, yeah. And it, it you know, people can feel like, well, then I don't know what to say. Yeah. It's like it's like learning a particular style of music and then never actually veering off. Like, oh, I learned from a rock musician. You're like, yeah, but not your heart says jazz though. Like, learn some, <laughs> like learn some jazz. It's okay, it's okay to play some other music. Yeah. Well, okay. if you're still playing what they were writing in the '60s, nobody's uh, going to be playing it on the radio, uh, right? I mean, it's just not going to happen. That's, that's good. True. So uh, in your book, you talk about, and you mentioned earlier, kind of looking at some best practices of churches that are doing this well. Yeah. Uh, what might some of those be uh, how the, of these churches that are doing this well? Yeah, I think uh, so. What's fun is when you look at churches, do research, and then you go back to scripture and you say, oh, this, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't so new. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. There it is. There it is. You know, right? So Acts 17 is a great uh, uh, parallel Athens is a great mm-hmm. city to mm. compare to modern day uh, America. Mm. There's philosophy, there's kind of new age, there's yeah. new paganism. Right. Uh, it's a pluralistic kind of environment. You have all kinds of sexual orientations. You have all kinds of tolerance and relativism. You have arguments about those kinds of things. So Paul went into, you know, a sort of a parallel to modern day America when he preached there. Mm. And what he found was it took longer People were further away, but there was an approach that you had to practice Hmm. in order to get anywhere. Right. And Paul, the brilliant guy that he was. So notice this. We find this in our research, you know, and then it's like, oh, (laughs) I thought we had a new idea. (laughs) That's pretty humbling, right? It was very humbling. but, But he went through a set of steps that we feel like if you go through it today, you are going to have a completely different trajectory mm-hmm. in your conversations with nuns, with millennials, with all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you mentioned as the as the quote biggest issue that the church is facing is the secularization of the church. What, is, what does that mean and how do we recover from that? Well, it, the, so this is really interesting because uh, when you look back in history, there have been a lot of low moments for the church. Mm. 
And a lot of times when culture was going away, probably none more so than at the end of the Revolutionary War. Right. Uh, during that period, there was only about a 17% church attendance wow. rate. Wow. Wow. And from then until now, it went up to about 42%, 40% who say they attend weekly, and 55% who say they attend at least infrequently. Hmm. That's a huge percentage of the population. And what you see is that the churches that secularized lost their edge, started dwindling, decreasing, and going away. Mm. And the churches that kept their spiritual vibrancy and their countercultural statement and life together, those grew. Wow. Gosh, that's so convicting. All right, he's going to stick around for one more segment. That's been Rick Richardson, author of You Found Me, new research on how unchurched nuns, millennials, and irreligious are surprisingly open to Christian faith. I have like 6,000 more questions. <laughs> but I guess we got to buy the book that yeah, comes out right, today. Right. <laughs> Hopefully you can fit it in nine minutes. That's been Rick Richardson here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, if you're just joining us, the show is podcasted. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. And we have in the studio Rick Richardson, author of You Found Me. And I mentioned I have like 6,000 more questions. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll just buy you coffee later. But I, 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 <laughs> Could I think, you record that, please? Yeah, right. <laughs> just set up in the, in the middle of the room. The, I think the million-dollar question that I want to ask, though, is you, you talk about the church needing new approaches to have different kinds of conversations, which that like just makes my heart happy. But I also recognize that when I hear that, I don't totally know what that looks like. Can you just unpack that a little bit? What does it look Mm -hmm. like for the church to reimagine some of its approach to have different kinds of conversations? That's a great question. (laughs) Thanks so much. Uh, Yeah. So I actually, I moved from Wheaton to the South loop of Chicago Mm -hmm. and, uh, in the South Loop of Chicago, my neighbors are very different than they were in Wheaton. Yeah, yeah right. In my condo building, it turns out about half the couples on my floor are gay couples. Wow. And I hadn't, I didn't really have that in Wheaton. Right. It wasn't quite the same environment or culture. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we started building trust. Uh, God loves me. God loves all people. We want to communicate love. We want to serve well. Uh, And we had a next-door neighbor that we started to care about. We did a couple things that were concrete to serve them. They actually cared for us in a couple of ways. And they finally had us over for a meal. We had a wonderful conversation. And we talked about relationships and long-term relationships Mm. and what makes them last. Mm. And and one of the things I talked about was I just think uh, every seven years or so, you got to recommit because actually the people in the relationship are different. Hmm, and they wow. need, and they need to recommit to the people that are there now, not to the people that were there in the beginning. And wow. and the lights kind of went on in the wow. conversation. And so the, the one of the guys came over next week and said, "Hey, we're having relationship problems, and uh, could you give us counseling?" Wow. And I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> 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 yeah, I'd love to do that. Yeah, that sounds great." And I, but you know, it was kind of like. Uh, I am over my head. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, uh, but I know the feeling, by the way. <laughs> but but we went through a process mm-hmm. with each other that was unbelievable. We so first there was building trust based on common interests. Mm. Second, we I needed to find whatever I could to affirm about their spiritual journey so that they know I get them, right. that I respect them, yeah. and that I learn from them. 
That's and that's good. what Paul did. He built trust on common interests, and then he said, I see you worship this unknown God. Uh, that's cool. Right. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Mm. But he affirmed it. He, that's not what he was thinking. Yeah. Right, right. You know, but he affirmed it. Yeah. And when people feel like you get them, believe in them, that's when they'll journey with you and have a yeah. spiritual conversation. So that was that's kind great. of the second. But then there's a there's a transition. At some point, challenge has to start happening. Mm. Challenge about what we wrap our lives up in. And, and here's kind of the interesting thing. As we got to know these guys deeply, it wasn't gay issues that mm. we got into. Mm. It was issue issues. It was relationship <laughs> issues. Yeah. It was codependency and it was idolatry of, of other people and other relationships. Mm. And, and that's the stuff that we began to challenge. And then it was natural to share my story of Jesus and the way he helped me in those same areas yeah. in my relationships. And wow. man, we went a long way. We started a book study with wow. one of them. Uh, he's since come to Christ oh my gosh. and is in the process of kind of working what out what that means. That's beautiful. And it's caused pain in the relate a lot of pain in the relationship mm. that he has, but it has been incredible. Wow. Wow, that is that's powerful. Uh it brings back a conversation we had earlier about how we all try to evangelize in ten minutes and yeah. do this. Yeah. Speak to the the you know the Christian out there where when they hear your story, they're like, nope, you should have fought them, tell them what they're doing's wrong, doing this. It feels like one of the issues we have with evangelism is not having the long term in mind, but wanting to fight for all these cultural issues and die on these hills. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So when I look at Jesus, uh, the only people he really fought were the really religious people, right? <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah, Isn't that, that who he had arguments yeah, with? Isn't that who he yelled at? Is yeah. that, and he, he yelled at them because they were building barriers mm -hmm. to the broken people coming back to God, that, to, to women, to prostitutes, to all kinds of people who were right. broken and knew it and wanted to begin to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus hated when religious people built barriers for broken people to find God. Yeah. So that's my priority when I'm out there. And that's what I focus on is I don't want barriers. So what I've seen is that when we build trust, when we affirm whatever we can, mm. uh, that then creates the context where we can challenge and help people come to Christ. That takes time. Yes. Yeah. And right. the issue time. is you ask the diagnostic question along the mm. way, right? Like, do mm. we have trust? Yeah. Are we enjoying each other based on common stuff we share? Yeah. Hey, do they know I get them, respect them, love them, and believe in them? Yeah. Yep. If they don't know that yet, it's not time to influence yeah. them. And when mm. we come in with our confrontation early to broken people, which we all are, yes. right? Then it just pushes them away. Mm. That's one of the questions that we ask a lot when we say, uh, when you're confronting someone, would that other person say, that I'm for them. Would yeah. they, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like when bringing a word of criticism, you come with a scalpel or a hatchet, they both cut, yeah. but only one of them cuts to heal. Yeah. And I think, so you mentioned like the Jesus reserves his harshest criticisms for the religious elite, right? Which often that's the category that that's we fall into. Right. That's, totally. that's us. We're so, the elder brother. Yeah. What do you say to the person then that's like, okay, I'm not actively building barriers, but they're maybe not actually doing much to dismantle pre-existing barriers. They, like someone listening, thinking like, well, I'm not building Barriers. I'm not building walls, so I'm I'm in good shape. Like you know, I think it needs to go further. Like, what are the ways that you're actively dismantling the things that divide us? What would you say to the person that is sort of just innocuous? They're sort of apathetic to the whole approach. What I'd really say is, mm. and if you're in that category, I, or in that seat, 
what I would just want to say is I would love to give you a vision mm-hmm. to begin to see the possibilities of our culture and people in our culture, people who are relativists, people who have different views on sex and sexual orientation, people who are different than us politically, that you would have a vision yeah. of them mm. finding Jesus, knowing Jesus, growing up in Jesus. I tell you, renewal, revival, those that stuff still happens yeah. when we have that kind of love for people. Yeah, And so, you know, neutral is not enough. Mm. That's good. Neutral is not enough. That's powerful. Uh this might be unfair just in the last two minutes we have here, but like we've been saying, you're just an evangelist at heart. You want to see people uh, come to know Jesus. And we do know that there are people listening out there who they will listen to a radio show before they ever walk into a church. Uh, And so maybe to that broken person driving right now going, God could never love me. We want to let you do your evangelist heart here Mm -hmm. as they're driving and feeling like all this stuff's fine, but God could never love me. Maybe speak some encouragement to them. Yeah, I've, I just recently was on a radio program and a lawyer called in and he had a huge uh, sense of guilt, a mm. huge sense of brokenness. And, and he was trying to tell us, hey, I just I have I've done so many things wrong. I'm going to court now. I'm going to end up in prison wow. and, and uh, I'm not ready to come to Christ. And we were just able to say to him, man, it is not what you do to clean yourself up. Before you come back to God, yeah. the the thing that the Christian message is all about is God climbs down the ladder into our pit yeah. in Jesus Christ to kind of pick us up, yeah. wash us up, and carry us up the ladder mm. to reach God. That's for you, whoever you are. That's oh, such good news. That's so good, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. You, if you're just joining us, this has been Rick Richardson, author of You Found Me. New research on how unchurched nuns, millennials, irreligious are surprisingly open to Christian faith. The book comes out today. Go buy it. Please go buy a dozen of them. Hand them out to your friends, your yes. pastors. Rick, so grateful for you, man. You so Thank much, you for joining man. us. I uh, love being with you guys. Likewise, man. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. I'm just going to stick with that. People are going to start calling you... I'm good with it. The right Reverend. It could be... I've been called much worse. I just... Same. I hope same. one of these days you start wearing vestments to the studio. I mean, usually on the weekends I do. But do you? No. I've seen pictures. I don't think... <laughs> you wear cargo shorts. Cargo I've, shorts I've, and <laughs> <laughs> Jeans today, because it's so cold out, but... Yeah, what is up? I don't want to talk about know. it. It's yeah. infuriating. Yep. I... I I don't know why we're still surprised by this weather because it seems to go this way every single year. Yes. And every single year, all of us go in June ah, and then we're fine with it. And then we don't do anything about it. If you want to talk with us or chat with us or interact with the show in any way, shape or form, a couple of ways you can do that. You can go to Facebook at the common good radio show. You can text us at six, eight, six, eight, three. And then in your message body, just type CG for common good. You can also go to 1160hope.com, plus the show is podcasted. Legitimately, if you like and subscribe and review, that stuff actually really helps us out. So if you would be so kind, that would mean a lot for us. Yep. And uh, Brian, you had found a story. I'll just read the headline because I think it's one of those types of stories that um, 
we don't hear enough of and yep. when we do it, there's just something about this kind of story that I find so compelling. It says, uh, Emmanuel shooting victim's son says, sharing how God had him forgive Dylan Roof is his life mission. It's crazy, man. So uh, this guy by the name of Chris Singleton, the article tells us, who lost his mother in the tragic, you might remember the 2015 Emmanuel uh-huh. um, uh, Church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, says he was able to forgive the killer and God has made it his life mission to share the story with others. So there is now a movie out co- coming out called a documentary, excuse me, called Emmanuel, Emmanuel, uh, which hits theaters uh, June 17th and 19th uh, nationwide. So you can look it up and see if it's in any theaters around here. But it shares, it says here, the chilling testimonies of the victims of the 2015 shooting uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, while giving viewers a look into the church's history. And so uh, the moving documentary, it says, is being released to coincide with the anniversary of the convicted shooter, 21-year-old white supremacist Dylan Roof, and his first court appearance where one by one Roof was forgiven by the family members of the nine people he shot dead. And so uh, I would encourage you to go see it. But what uh, what is amazing in here is that then this article goes on to interview him um, and it, it truly has become this guy's mission to not only genuinely forgive the guy, the white supremacist who came in and shot his mother in cold blood, but then to share with the world why he's doing that. And I guess I would just start by saying, you know what? I do believe in the power of forgiveness. I do believe that like there is a step here that is important even for his own mental health to be able to forgive somebody like that. I just don't know how it's done. Yeah. I just don't know how you get to that spot um, where it goes from concept to really, no, I actually forgive him. He's a, he, this kid's got troubles and uh, getting to that point. I, I've always find it really impressive when I read stories like this. So why do you think stories of forgiveness seem to resonate so universally for religious people and non-religious people alike? There's something unifying about, seeing someone actually extend forgiveness in a way that most of us look at and say, Oh, that is almost unthinkable. Like there's this, there seems to be, maybe I'm missing something, but there seems to be this really universal, like leaning in, like how is this person capable to, to allow forgiveness into their life for something so horrendous? Like why, why does that resonate so deeply across the board? Because if you've never had a, uh, an experience like that, it feels like, it would be just so hard to actually do to get to the point of genuinely forgiving. And uh, Singleton is his name, Chris Singleton. He says, I think first and foremost, when people think you forgive, they automatically think you submitted and you're weak. I think that's the complete opposite of what forgiveness is. I think it takes more strength and more courage to forgive somebody than it does to hold a grudge and be angry and upset all the time. I think that's the easy way out. And so I think it resonates because we believe, I think, in our minds uh, that forgiveness, you've preached a sermon like I have probably, uh, forgiveness does more to let you out of the prison than it does the other person. It does something for you. I just don't think that we've actually ever seen it modeled and, and believable to the point where a guy who lost his mom in cold blood is going, no, you know what? Uh, as sad as I am and as, as hard as this is, I'm going to, I'm going to embrace what Jesus has done for me. And, uh, and I'm going to extend forgiveness to this monster. I mean, Dylan Roof, what he did is monstrous. Yeah. And, uh, I think we all want to believe that that's possible and true, but never, none of us are real sure that we could actually go that route. Yeah. The more that I read about this guy, the more I'm 
uh, impressed by it, yeah. just his character and the fortitude. There are two questions he's asked, and I want to share his responses because the article is not just about forgiveness, which in and of itself is a tremendous story of forgiveness, like to an unthinkable degree. But he's asked two questions in this interview. The first one is, after everything that you've been through, how do you, a victim of the worst kind of racism, combat racism? Mm. So he's he's been victim in the worst possible way, lost his mother. He's asked, how do you actually yeah. combat this? And I, I could imagine going a trillion different directions with that question. He says, to somebody that looks different than me, I'm going to be extra nice to them. Wow. I have no idea if they're racist or not, but I think it's super hard for somebody that's racist to be mean to you if you're being super nice to them. I think by being super kind to somebody, you can change somebody's mind about people that look like you forever. Mm. What kind of wisdom and perspective is that? To someone who's lost his mom to say, you know, I'm going to combat it. I'm going to be super nice. It's crazy. That's unbelievable. It's to me. crazy. How, how do you like, what do you think it is that brought him to that kind of conclusion? Well, I would have to think that his faith in Jesus plays a large part in this. But again, this is so much where the rubber meets the road. And so it does make sense, right? If you're more different than me, then, then my move should be to be nicer to you and to try to understand and bridge those gaps. But what he's, we know that usually the opposite is true. And so, man, it does. It just resonates. Let me tell you the, the question in here that really haunted me a little bit and really got me Yeah, was later on the interview. It says, has Dylan Roof responded to your act of forgiveness? Yeah. So that's the shooter, the 21-year-old shooter. Uh, they've made a point to forgive him, to reach out to him. So has Dylan Roof responded to your act of forgiveness? Singleton replies, I haven't seen any response or reaction from him in any way. Hmm. Like the storybook ending here is that Dylan Roof is blown away and his life has changed. And and this is like a tangible picture that forgiveness doesn't always get tied into the other person's reaction or even acceptance of your forgiveness. Dylan Roof, a white supremacist, is going out by action or non-action, seems to be saying, I don't care to I don't care for your forgiveness. Yeah. And uh, part of this movie is this is it's still an important step to take, which is which is unbelievable. So another question he's asked here, and I'm to me, this is like this is a sermon in and of itself says, uh, how does one keep going on after everything you've been through? Which is a very Mm -hmm. human question. I appreciate the interviewer saying "How, how in the world do you just as a person keep going on after everything you've been through? And I think his response is brilliant. He says, in a sense, I'm never going to try to move on. There's always going to be a piece of me that's gone because of that. But I've used the incident, my mom's life being taken away the way that it was. I've used that to kind of fuel me and my mission to spreading love and unity. So I guess in a way, I'm not really moving on from it. I'm using that as fire and fuel to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. What do you think of that? This guy's really impressive. Like you said, the more you read it, I want to see this documentary. I want to... Uh, try to understand where he's coming from because the more things he say, they do two things to me. One, they're bl- they blow me away that that he can actually live this out, yeah. right? They can actually. But two, when he says it, they sound like they make sense. The the thing you said about racism before, some of his stuff that he says about forgiveness, like you you read it, and you're like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Why is it so hard? It's because there's so much emotion in this and so much hurt. Uh, but he's he's almost blazing a trail of going like, hey, you know, the Bible says a lot of stuff about forgiveness. Let me show you it's true. And uh, let me let me put this on a big screen for you to see. Like, just right. really, I, I got no other words in the say. Just really impressive. Yeah, I'll end with this. He says, I think first and foremost, when people think that you forgive, they automatically think you've submitted and that you're weak. Yep. I think that's the complete opposite of what forgiveness is. I think it takes more strength and more courage to forgive somebody than it does to hold a grudge to be angry and upset all that time. And that way of 
like taking bolt cutters to the wrong that was done to you. It's right. Unforgiveness mm-hmm. is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. Like his, he's a walking, talking example of forgiveness, not being about even the other person asking for it. Yep. This person's done nothing to deserve it by our standards. And yet he knows that the way to freedom is to extend it, even though the most unthinkable thing has been done. And the guy hasn't even reciprocated. He hasn't no. even shown in any way, any appreciation. And he seems to be of the fullest belief that forgiveness is still is still the way forward, is still the right move, even if he never hears from this guy again. And I think, man, that that is such an important reminder. If you're listening and you're thinking that you've been holding on to something for a long time, yes. like pay attention to what that's doing to your heart. And m- maybe it's time to take bolt cutters to the wrong that was done to you to no longer be shackled to the evil that's been done to you mm. to actually step a little bit more into freedom. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk with Cindy Boston, who uh, is the vice president of Heartbeat International, and they're taking on a new venture uh, to help moms in crisis situations. You're not Mm. going to want to miss that interview. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to have you join us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show uh, or online at 1160hope.com. And uh, we are in the midst of a, of a campaign to try to help save babies. We talk all the time on this show about the abortion debate, about the things going on, particularly in our state, but also nationwide. And with that in mind, we are really excited to be joined again by Cindy Boston. Cindy uh, is a part of Heartbeat International. Cindy, thank you again for joining us today. Thanks. It's great to be here representing Heartbeat's option line. Yeah, and that's what we wanted to talk about again. So when you were on last week, we gave people some background about what the option line is. But could you do that again for us? Can you talk about what the option line is and why it's so important uh, in this abortion conversation? Well, women who have an unplanned pregnancy, they are very isolated. Women feel very alone during an unplanned pregnancy. They feel like there's no one they can turn to. But the reality is they're, they're looking on the web, and they find Heartbeat's <laughs> option line. It's a 24-7, 365 helpline that intervenes on behalf of women and children every single day. In fact, we're answering in between 1,100 and 1,800 calls, emails, texts, and chats wow. every single day. Wow. Um, and as I looked at the numbers for Chicago, you know, there, are, there were 30. 450 calls and 1,800 chats in Illinois last year. Wow. A dominant amount of those, 5,200 plus, came from the Illinois Chicagoland area. Mm. So um, there are women there who are going to make a pregnancy decision this week. I think people should know women will make a decision this week and they can intervene, make sure every woman knows about Heartbeat's option line and finds help and hope during her struggle. So you had shared with us last week that since launching, you're nearing something like the 4 million mark in terms of people that have reached out, something like every 45 seconds, uh, someone reaches out to the option line for help. And, and this is a, uh, a Chicagoland show. And I'm wondering, do you have any stories that you could share with us? Because some of these statistics are so staggering to me. Right. Um, but I'd, I'd love yeah. to really get personal. If, if you have any stories that you could share with our listeners that kind of drive this point home for us. 
Absolutely. You know, last year, and it was interesting because, um, you know, we've done some training up in Chicago. Uh, Heartbeat has invested quite a bit in training pregnancy center leaders, being actively engaged in helping prepare them for legislative issues. Um, we have we have invested a lot of money in that area because we care about what's happening to women and children in the Chicagoland area. Um, we had a lady who called Heartbeat's option line. She was pregnant with twins and she knew that, but life circumstances were very difficult and she wasn't sure she could go forward with her pregnancy. Mm. She said, um, I really don't think I have what it takes, um, money, uh, support, and all of that. Well, we connected her, um, did a little crisis intervention at that moment, and then we connected her to a local pregnancy center and they were able to provide all kinds of amazing support and resources for her. You know, pregnancy centers stand in the gap. And Heartbeat's pregnancy centers made a complete difference in Shannon's ability to be able to carry her pregnancy forward. She had beautiful twins, and she she reached back out to Heartbeat's option line and said, thank you for being there. She said, I would have done something I would have forever regretted. Women who have an unplanned pregnancy, they just need somebody to talk to. Heartbeat's option line is available 24-7, and we're there for women at their gravest point of need. We can help. Option line makes a difference for the women. And again, our goal is to get 36 hours sponsored uh, by our listeners. That is for a gift of $75. That is what it takes to sponsor one hour of the option line. Uh, That gift of $75 can literally save the life of a baby, uh, empower a mother to go and have her child. Uh, So, but maybe you could do more than one hour. Uh, You could do whatever else, obviously any variable of $75 uh, we'll continue to sponsor the option line. And, and so you could do that by going to saveababynow.com. That's saveababynow.com. Or go to 1160hope.com and click on the banner. Or you can make a phone call if that's how you want to make your donation by calling 1-800-999-7408. That's 1-800-999-7408. And Cindy, I would ask... Uh, I'm wondering with uh, the increase uh, spotlighting on um, the abortion debate right now and some of the crazy laws that are going on, are you guys seeing kind of a more of a grassroots movement of people? Are you guys actually seeing an increase of people wanting to do something uh, to kind of make a difference right now? Yes, and that's why I felt like the people there in Chicago area would want to join in. Uh, People, I think people have had to get off the fence. Mm-hmm. Uh, with everything that's happening, New York, Virginia, um, uh, we're seeing, and now Illinois, we're seeing some definite lines being drawn. And I think sometimes people are worried that Roe will be overturned. Um, and they're, so they're securing their state for abortion rights, that it is a, priv- that it is a right to have an abortion in those states. Uh, the sad part is there are hurting women who just need help. Uh, and and your listening audience, your radio family can make all the difference for one woman. Mm. If they sponsor an hour, they're going to be actually reaching 29 to 30 women in one hour. So saving a life, you'll save multiple lives if you sponsor one hour of Heartbeats Option Line. So one of the things that I'm curious about, because I know that we have individual listeners, but we also have people who like lead organizations and lead churches and lead small groups. Like, what would you say to the people that maybe feel like they can do more than just simply an hour sponsorship? Like, can you speak to people that have, I don't know, maybe maybe some organizational influence or authority to, to make a difference? 
I'm in Chicago all the time, and and as a heartbeat vice president, I would love to come talk to those people. Mm. If they will reach out to us, we would be happy to to make time to fly in and talk with them. Awesome. We are impacting and saving lives in Chicago area, but there's so much more we could do. We could save more lives through Heartbeats Option Line, the SaveABabyNow.com, but we could also do more. We could help more centers get more women, uh, help more women who are in crisis uh, make a life choice. It's time for us to save our own, right? The, The government's not doing it. This is a time for Christians to rise up, to get involved, and to say, I'm saving lives right now. Hmm. So one more time, you could go to saveababynow.com, that's saveababynow.com, or go to 1160hope.com and click on the banner, or call 1-800-999-7408. And for the um, donation of $75, you will sponsor one hour of the option line, which will literally help save the lives of babies and empower moms. And our goal over the three weeks of this campaign is to get 36 hours sponsored by our listeners. So we would ask you to go. Uh, to any of those, saveababynow.com or 1160hope.com uh, or call 1-800-999-7408. Cindy, with like the minute le- that we have left, I just wanted to kind of leave it open for you uh, to our listeners uh, to just uh, <laughs> kind of bring it home and uh, encourage them to get on and, and make that donation. You know, we recently had a lady named Stacy. She she called in. She had been drugged and raped. She didn't know where to turn. We were able to be with her through part of that process and to say to her, you need help, and we have help mm-hmm. in your neighborhood. Heartbeats uh, pregnancy centers are across the nation. We have um, over 1,600 of them throughout the United States. We have a large majority right there in the Chicago area in Illinois. Join us help us save lives. Uh, As you go throughout your week, you'll know, I'm saving lives this week. How great is that to know you're influencing how a woman feels uh, as far as her unplanned pregnancy? She will feel support because you gave. It's only $75 to sponsor an hour, and you'll touch 29 or 30 women Mm. in that one hour. What a great opportunity. Absolutely. And so one more time, if you are at all compelled, we would ask you to go to saveababynow.com. That's saveababynow.com. Or you can go to 1160hope.com and click on the banner. Uh, or if you've got your phone and you want to make a phone call, it's 1-800-999-7408. That's 1-800-999-7408. And for just $75, uh, you can sponsor an entire hour of the option line, helping save babies, empower moms, and make a difference uh, in this uh, this abortion discussion that so many of us are having. Well, Cindy Boston from Heartbeat International, we're excited to partner with you. Thank you so much for joining us again today. It's such a pleasure. God bless. Uh, you too. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is also here. Wearing his cargo shorts? No, he's not. He's not. I gotta confess to you guys. Jeans. I'm s- tuxedo. I'm in a tuxedo he's today with tails and a monocle. <laughs> it is super uncomfortable to be sitting across the table from. You've been right going now. at me for so long about my attire that I went. I went the other direction. I zigged when you oh, zagged. Okay, hold on. I've been going after you, you for a long time. Been. What are you doing? Me in my cargo shorts, John? If I've been going after him. 
Yeah, he says not exactly. That's uh, <laughs> as much as Brian was trying to sway him to his way of thinking. All right, so uh, caveat to this story. Um, it's going to sound like Brian and I have stacked the deck of this story because <laughs> we're pastors and, you know, like volunteering is a uh, is a pretty important part of any church community, any faith community of any kind. And one of the things that I find to be really convicting is that People expect pastors to stand on stages and say, hey, we need volunteers. Yep. We've found that it's always so much more effective when someone who has been a part of volunteering themselves talks about their experience yep. because it very rarely is like, yeah, it was the right thing to do. So I did it. And I guess it makes God happy when I volunteer. It's almost yeah. always like I didn't realize how much I would enjoy it or how meaningful it would be to my family or even just personally like like what it even did to my own sense of purpose and identity. And so there's this, uh, this article out of vice that says volunteering is actually the best kept secret for mental health. And the subtitle is I noticed how much volunteering was helping with my anxiety and stress. And there's actually science to back it up. What's going on there. Uh, Yeah. And I I always love to point out where these articles are coming from. Right. So this is not out of a a Christian publication, like you said, or it's not out of, pastors.com going, Hey, here's another way to manipulate people into serving in your church. (laughs) Tell them it's good for their brains. This is just out of, uh, out of vice and it's citing research. So let me read this paragraph. It says, it's generally understood that helping out others makes a person feel nice, but that experience goes beyond just the feel good glow of altruism. Studies have found that helping others has tangible benefits, both mental and physical from lowering your blood pressure to reducing feelings of depression and research hasn't found any significant differences in difference in the types of volunteering. Mm. Any help, kind of helpful act can create benefits. And then later on, it says this is still an emerging field of study. So the underlying functions aren't fully understood yet. But we have a few clues like research that shows that oxytocin, a neurotransmitter that regulates social interaction, spikes in some people who regularly volunteer, helping them to better manage stressful events. And so it keeps going on about the physical benefits and uh, and eventually here's it's uh, it's uh, this article's conclusion. Helping others is a natural high. Our brains are wired for uh, and is therefore uh, good for your for your mental health. It's good for your physical health. And uh, man, it's just this picture of like living a selfless life or doing things that are selfless. Uh, while not just biblical, uh, really is here painting a picture that says it is actually good for you. One of the the things that you can do to advance your own self is to help other people and not be self-centered. And that sounds so backwards, and it also sounds so biblical. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, because the, the, the article goes on to talk about not just like good feelings in the brain, but mm-hmm. like for people over 50, it reduces the risk of hypertension. It affects blood pressure. Like... The physical, physiological, like the benefits to me are so much more vast than I even realized. And I think this is something that churches would do well to talk about yes. because sometimes, and this may come as a shock, there are people in our churches who don't believe in God. They don't buy the like moral ethical reasoning behind like, hey, it's something that you should do and Jesus died for your sins. It's the least you could do. I I think we could really benefit from saying, hey, even if you're not into this whole Jesus thing yet, you don't totally buy this Bible, you're not even really yeah. sure, you just got dragged here by a spouse or a friend, giving back 
actually has these empirical benefits that are proven by people that are not even of the same faith tribe as us. So maybe it's worth stepping up and even just giving it a shot, even though you're not really sure you buy into the whole mission of Jesus and church thing. Like, do yourself a favor by giving back a little bit and you'll actually reap some of the benefits. Yeah. And and it does um, raise the question as to why culturally do we, you know, we often people who aren't like you like to say team Jesus, they'll still buy into research and brain research. uh, Yet so many of us search out uh, purely self-centered and selfish things. You know, we want pleasure, we want stuff, but also we want some of these things that this article is saying are better found through giving and volunteering your time and your money and your energy to to empower and help other people. And uh, yeah, I don't know, like it got me thinking, like, what would our nation look like? What would our culture look like if this became kind of commonplace where people were going yeah, you know what? I want to be healthy. So yeah, I'll work out. Yeah, yes. I'll, I'll, I'll eat well. But you know what else I'm going to do? I am going to volunteer and serve others. Like what? Man, that would really make a big change in our culture. What do you think would be the main change? Like what? How do you think that would actually affect at a societal level that people had a, uh, a, a stronger sense of that? Uh, a, it feels like we would be more compassionate people. It, it's hard um, to be others focused and volunteer and to be giving of your time and at the same time be self-centered and selfish. Right. And so I, my guess is that we would probably become a more compassionate and a more patient and a more understanding culture that doesn't presume the worst in people, but tends to presume what is good in people. Uh, and then I just think, you know, we would become uh, a culture where people, I, I just, I don't know how else to put it, except I think there would be more of a good feeling in our culture. Like think Mm. about how you feel and how the people you serve feel when there's this, you know, volunteering, giving of yourself, giving of your time, it builds people up who need assistance. And I think uh, that, that it would just have an overall uh, beneficial uh, effect on just kind of just kind of the sense that the culture has of itself. Right. I'm curious though, what you think are the hurdles for, maybe a Christ follower that feels guilty volunteering for their own personal benefits. Like, is there any like weird, tricky, wonky theology that like we feel the need as churches to talk about serving as like a moral imperative because of our theology versus like, how often have you heard churches say, Hey, volunteer because you're going to benefit. Yeah. Like, does that feel somehow like backwards to our moral ethical sensibilities? Like the, the churches shy away from, kind of those selling points because it feels non-Christian. Like, do you feel like there's any, any tension there? I don't. That's a really interesting question. I'd be interested how you feel about this. I don't, I mean, I've given that message about giving before, like, Hmm. uh, or not message, but like, that's been a point in a message about generosity and giving like, Hey, and another thing, as you're giving away of your time, uh, and you're giving away of your resources and you're giving away of your money, it actually benefits you to be a generous person. And so, I think we could speak in volunteering the same way. Uh, hopefully we're not so territorial that it's only volunteering within the church. Yeah. But it's like, hey, maybe you're good at volunteering at X or Y. What we want to encourage you is to volunteer and to give uh, of your time and your resources. And there are some outlets to do it here at the church. That's right. Uh, but I'm not telling you this so that you'll do it at the church. I don't care, actually. I, I, if you go and serve at the at the homeless shelter or the pad shelter or whatever, then great. We're, we're excited for you. Well, one of the things that I love about our church, actually, so Amy Plummer, who is at the head of our community 412, which is like our social justice compassion 
arm of community. Uh, every year we have this massive summer event called Summer Serve. In fact, you could go there right now if you want, communitychristian.org slash summer serve. And we're going to mobilize hundreds and hundreds of volunteers to partner with like 27 local ministries around uh, Chicagoland. Wow. And so we're rather than like, hey, come to us and we're going to, we're actually partnering with ministries that already exist in our cities. And, um, and I've, I mean, I've done it every year that I've been here and I do always walk away with this sense of one, how awesome is our church Yeah. Two, wow, it really feels good to give back. And three, the, the other local ministries that we partner with, I think are given a different glimpse of what the local church can look like, Mm. like rather than trying to distract from what they're doing or what the church often ends up doing, to be honest, is we do a less efficient version of what someone else is already doing. Mm. So we say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to come alongside you. What would it look like? If next weekend uh, we gave you 50 volunteers to do with whatever you need with, I mean, they, they respond so wonderfully. And I think it shows that we're like, Hey, we're, we're for the city. It's what we talk about wanting to be an impact church that even yeah. people in our neighborhoods that don't attend our church or don't even know how they feel about churches. If we were threatened to be removed, would say, Hey, no, we, we need that church mm. in our community. And I, I love what this article says because it says, it goes way beyond the act of volunteering altruism in many forms from donating money uh, to just random acts of kindness have been shown to light up the same reward centers of the brain associated with food and sex. Helping others is a natural high that mm. our brains are wired for and not to get too super spiritual. It's like God wired us that way. Yep. That when the impulse is to like grip tighter, to, to hoard, to, to be stingy. Yeah. God's wired is actually when you're generous, both with your time, but also with your resources, I've wired, something's going to start firing in your yeah, brain. Like that's yeah. way better than hoarding, isn't it? Yeah. That's way better than being selfish with your time and resources. And, and then we, God's saying, that's why you're wired. We search out that high for our brains, if you will. Uh, oftentimes we associate that with self-centered things. If I can get yeah. more of this, if I can experience this, if I can do that, and even research here is showing like you're war- you're warring against your own wiring. That's right. That's I mean always a good reminder. But yep. for me, it's so encouraging to see the actual science behind something that you and I have had a sense about for yep. a long time. Well, coming up next, the way we're going to land the plane is the way we always do some random internet insanity that our executive producer Keith Conrad has found. We have not read it yet. We're going to read it sight unseen. That's coming up next on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. And that sound can only mean one thing. Well, it can mean a number of things. But here's the main thing it means. Uh, We're landing the plane. It also means that we're going to read some interweb insanity. There's stories, as a disclaimer, that we have not found. Never seen them. Our executive producer, Keith Conrad. You can find him at at Keith R. Conrad on Twitter. Found these stories. We do not know what they are. Uh, We're going to read them sight unseen. We don't know what the sound effects are. I just I want you to really know that because if any of these are offensive or uh, a little dark, just full disclaimer: we have no idea what's coming, and I'm going to kick us off this oh. time. Is that all right? Whoa, curveball! Ian starting us off. So, uh, Pakistan. This photo is so disturbing. P- politician's press conference becomes a bit of a catastrophe. The reason that's funny is because he's dressed like a cat. Uh, an incident in Pakistan last Friday really put the ow in meow. Oh, gosh. Uh, there you go. CNN reports regional minister Shakut Yusuf I can't say any of that. Was live streaming a press conference when a Facebook cat filter was accidentally enabled, giving him cat ears, a feline nose, and whiskers. Unbeknownst to him, 
<laughs> Facebook Live users apparently chimed in, but he kept on unaware reports to the BBC. Do I look like a cat to you, boy? <laughs> Am I jumping around all nimbly bimbly from tree to tree? No, no. <laughs> Am I drinking milk from a saucer? <laughs> well, do you see me eating mice? <laughs> hey, you stop laughing right now. Oh, that's so good. Do you know what that's from? Because I have no idea. Yeah, I think it's from uh, Super Troopers. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Not that I've ever seen a movie like that before ever. <laughs> I, my brother told me. Mil- Mar- Maryland, easy for me to say. <laughs> Maryland, a millionaire was secretly digging tunnels for a nuclear bunker. Then a fire broke out. Oh, boy. A wealthy stock trader awaits sentencing for his conviction in the fiery death. Oh, what? Someone died. Of a man who was helping him secretly dig tunnels. That's when ooh, they turned ooh, dark. Ooh, someone died. That's no, what I was saying it's out of it. Ooh, someone died. Uh, the person was secretly helping him dig tunnels for a nuclear bunker beneath a Maryland home. Oh, boy. Daniel Beckwith faces a maximum 30 years in prison when Montgomery County Circuit Court Judge Margaret Schweitzer sentences him on Monday. In April, a jury convicted the 28-year-old of second-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter in the September 2017 death of 21-year-old Askia oh, Kafra. During the trial, uh, the prosecutor accused Beckwith of recklessly endangering Kafra's life and sacrificing safety for secrecy. Uh, but one of Beckwith's attorneys told Jersey accident was an, uh, the fire. I can really read <laughs> the fire was an accident, not a crime. And cover. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, so can I admit something to you on yeah. air here? Uh, Keith told me that the second one was going to be a little dark, <laughs> which is it? exactly why I went first. <laughs> <laughs> and that I would have trouble reading. I'm like, I got that. Let's just remember the moment where Brian Fromm went, ooh, he died. Ooh, he died. <laughs> ooh, boy. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. All right, Texas. A dog hijacked police car, ate officer's beef jerky. <laughs> a Texas police officer who stopped to try to catch a stray dog was carjacked by the sneaky canine, which feasted on the officer's beef jerky. The Kilgore Police Department said an officer responding to a report of a loose pit bull spotted the dog running near a road and attempted to coax the dog into the back seat of his patrol vehicle. The department said the dog instead jumped into the driver's seat and became aggressive when the officer tried to remove it. The post said the dog, quote, hide jacked the car and spent time quote enjoying the AC and the officer's beef jerky who saw old yeller <laughs> who cried when old yeller got shot at the end I mean I did nobody I did, cried when old yeller got shot I'm sure <laughs> I cried my eyes out I cried during old yeller did you <laughs> of course I did I have a soul so we, I, I just mixed mine up. Which one is next, Turkey or England? England. England, all right. Mixed yours up. How I did. did. I somehow turned them, like I turned over the ones we hadn't done, but turned over the ones that we did do, and I got all worried. Are and you flustered. okay today? I just, I I'm, 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 I'm the gonna, show's about done. I'm gonna Rick call, Richardson got in my head, man. I'm calling you an Uber, man. I don't think you should be driving. England lizard stows away in suitcase for 2,383-mile trip. Awesome. Animal rescuers in Wales said a small Balkan green lizard stowed away with some tourists and ended up 2,383 miles away from its home on the Greek island of Kos. Uh, the eight-inch lizard had shed its tail, a common defense mechanism, but was otherwise in good health when it was taken uh, by officers to the Silent World Reptile Center in Pembrokeshire. Pembrokeshire. <laughs> Bravo! That'll be hard to top. I pity the next tale of interest. <laughs> I love that as a defense mechanism, it sheds its tail. That's pretty cool. I knew you were going to latch onto that part. All right, last but not least, Turkey. 
Passengers subdue chaotic man on Turkish airline flight who was screaming and smashing things. Nice. I didn't know you were in Turkey. <laughs> uh, passengers on a Turkish Airlines jetliner flying to Sudan had to subdue a man who started screaming a few minutes after takeoff and began smack, uh, smacking, smashing uh, an contagious. oxygen mask box. <laughs> yes, yeah, contagious. And then a cabin window before pushing flight attendants aside and rushing toward the cockpit. Associated press photographer Hussan Malal was on the flight Friday and says several passengers stopped the man in the Boeing 737 business class section. Get off my plane. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go watch that movie right now. Got to do it. I love that movie. That's awesome. Never never a dull moment, my man. It's been great to been be with you. Day. We hope you join us tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.